You're listening to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 38. This week we're looking at Among the Stars, along with Vikings, Hearthstone with the next Ramus expansion, and a classic from Drew, Last Chance. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast about gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Episode 38. This week we're going to be talking about Among the Stars, a game we've been waiting for for a very, very long time. So very excited we finally got a copy and got it to the table. Um, Also talking about a few other fun games that we uh, got to play recently, including one that's almost kind of like Among the Stars. At least we told ourselves that when we played it. Um, And then a few fun things that we have planned for you. It's International Tolkien Week! So, we're going to talk about our favorite Tolkien games. Yeah, definitely. So stick around for that. And if, as always, if you have your favorite Tolkien games and don't agree with us, let us know. Especially if you disagree with Drew, who's probably going to say he doesn't like any of them. Uh, You'll be surprised at my answer. Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, Along those lines, actually, we got a a couple weeks ago, we talked about our favorite worker placement games. I got a couple responses from people, games that we have not played yet. Um... One that I've heard many times, and I'm going to pronounce this por- poorly, is Zolkin. 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 Uh, the yeah. Mayan calendar? Yeah. With a little apostrophe yeah, yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. So it got, that got recommended a couple times, actually. And then Fresco, which I know, Daniel, you just picked up. I did. So On we'll eight that. levels of sale, it was $15 for that and some expansions. <laughs> because when you go to hobby stores that don't really understand board games, and they've had that game there for three years... They sell it cheap. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks to Greg and Jeremy for sending over like your recommendations. Um, we will probably get at least play Fresco soon, and then I'm sure we have a copy of Stolkin around here somewhere. Yes. So that, I know that's popped up a lot recently when I've been researching worker placements. So now I want. To it's got little wheels. I love wheels and gears and rondelles. It's got lots of them. <laughs> I'm in. I'm there. I'm, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> let's find a copy. All right. So, again, thanks for uh, sending in your uh, your versions of what you like. Uh, obviously, anytime we have a question or anytime we're talking about our favorites, we want to know what yours are, so let us know. And uh, we'll, we'll lead off the show. We'll tell everybody what you think. And it just adds stuff to our to playlist. And we'll play them, which is great. Like Cyclades and Kemet, which were, uh, you know, listeners' responses, too. Yeah, that was a user submission. So Thank you. Yeah. It makes it easier. We don't even have to have meetings then. We just we know what to review. Uh, We're here for you. <laughs> makes, it, makes my job easier. Please tell us what to review. Um, but yeah, so that's that was a lot of fun. We're going to talk about Tolkien a little bit later. But first up, the news. Let's shout it from the tabletop. <laughs> we got some good news um, from the past couple of weeks. Um, Gen Con is now a distant memory. Essen is coming up next month. That's... Uh, Probably the biggest news everyone talks about is making plans to go to Germany. That's coming up, I think, October 16th through the 19th. Um, Biggest news I can think of there, Z-Man always has a pandemic version available. They're going to be releasing The Cure, which flips the game around on its end. I love games like that. Um, So there's also going to be a ton of other games. There's plenty of uh, websites out there that are previewing what's going on. So read up, because you're going to be spending a lot of money next month. (laughs) Um, 
Oh, and one one plan. What are your guys' uh, plans for Essen? Well, <laughs> do we do you even know if anybody's going? Personally, uh, no. Actually, we know our friend Tom Vassell and Eric Sumner are going, so we'll get Dice Tower oh, reports from there. But you know, if he has a big enough suitcase, I'm sure we can squeeze in there and you know meet with the Jamins. That's something. <laughs> and as Seven Wonders Babel will be coming out at Essen, so I'm really looking forward to that oh, for yeah. that release. Because we're big Seven Wonders fans. They've been talking about that for a while. Yeah, yeah. There's a few good ones coming out. Rosenberg's newest game too. What the in the field? Is that what it's called? I does it does it have farmers in it? Yes. Are they German? <laughs> there are German farmers. It's, it's a German farming game from Rosenberg. <laughs> well, a couple weeks ago we just had Farm Safety Week, so uh, um, good, good time, time for Essen. Yeah, yeah. Bring out all these farm games and practice safe meepling. Uh, interesting thing, uh, recently they had a Scrabble uh, championship in Sri Lanka that uh, they talked about this uh, kid, this nine-year-old kid who set a world record at Scrabble. I don't think any of us play it regularly anymore, but we all used to in our youth. 878 points in one wow. game what? by a nine-year-old kid. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Um, I think I got close to 300 once. That's the best I've ever done. <laughs> I broke 500 one time. Wow. And you're a god. I took the little piece of paper and put it on the refrigerator. And I was playing against my roommate at the time, so he appreciated that. <laughs> that every time he went to get a cereal and his milk, it was just right there. Kicked your butt. <laughs> Man, how many two letter words did you use to get that? All of them. <laughs> yeah. That's my problem. I never use two letter words. I mean, that was with two bingos. That's, you know, you have to get a lot of seven letter words if you want to score that much. You know, you know what really frustrates me? This kid, among all his bingos, he had the word headers. <laughs> headers. A D E E H R S. Who would, you know, we'd kill for that kind of combination. Sure. Yeah. In our rack. God, you got to be lucky sometimes. But that's, then it's still placement, though, because that word is worth, like, what, 10 points? Yeah. And if you don't get the bonuses? Yeah, so, get the 50, and then... So it's a 60-point word if all you do is drop it on the board. But if you find the right place for it, it could be a 150-point yeah. word. So. Mm-hmm. It's true. Timing is everything. And Mark, the competition yeah. must have been heavy, too. So it wasn't like somebody was just setting him up with, you know, no good spots. These people were trying to beat him, too. Yeah. So that's, so, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, he got a um, triple word score and a bingo out of Gruntles. G R U N T L E S. Yeah, wow. kid was smart. Next bit of news: Playdeck is releasing an organized play system, cross-platform. Um, now, Playdeck—they have apps for Ascension, Agricola, Summoner Wars, Can't Stop, a whole bunch of really good games. Um, organized play um, on our apps. Do we play many apps? I play online on the computer, but I don't have a lot of board game apps. I go in and out. Like, if there's a new one, I'll play it obsessively for, like, a month, and then it'll kind of fade away, because the online play is always a little meh, and the AI is always a little meh. So, like, I played Lords of Waterdeep nonstop for, like, a month, and then it started to make me mad, because the AI is really mean. I, I honestly find the whole idea a little bit less than appealing. The reason I like to play board games, as opposed to the enormous number of video games that are already out there... Is because I like the face-to-face interaction, I like spending time with my friends, and I like to not have a screen there for a little bit of the day. And so trying to push to apps, I mean, there's something nice about that. It gives another play dynamic, but it also means now it's competing for my time against multi-million dollar board, uh, video game projects with massive online mm. communities and far more dynamic gameplay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for just 
playing something that's very cerebral but not like constantly stimulating you know what i mean yeah like a video game is it's almost exhausting these days video games are tough like i don't even yeah. find myself playing modern games anymore and i love video games but mm-hmm. they're just they're so exhausting and i'm so mentally checked out by the end of the day that i'm like sitting down to play a game like borderlands or any of these you know, like destiny or titanfall or something i'm like it's just too much it hurts my brain yeah well for me like the uh, board game apps end up falling into like the, the even a serious board game app fits the same role as a casual video game fits when I move it to the video game world, right? Yeah. I, it's like playing sure. Begooled. It, it's just, it's okay. a, one that I have a past relationship maybe and a property I appreciate and enjoy and I like seeing it again and it's, oh, there's that thing I used to do all the time. Uh, and I haven't played that game in a while. Isn't this fun? But it's, you know, it's a, it, it is a tablet game, right? And it could never yeah. push beyond that, I think. Well, interesting to see what kind of support it gets and whether um, more companies will be uh, organizing uh, their games. Um, Barnes & Noble this past month uh, released a quarterly statement, and it got a lot of news in the um, business community and the board game community. It seems like um, their losses are declining, they're getting stronger because of toys and games. Yes. Um their uh, games and toys are now 23% of their revenue, and their sales are like 20%, and they've been double-digit for the past year. Is the gaming community keeping Barnes & Noble alive? Uh, I think mothers of young children are keeping Barnes & Noble alive. <laughs> have you been to Barnes & Noble recently? Yeah. I'm, I'm the- there all the time because I have a three-year-old, and that's exactly why they're still alive. But but to be fair to Barnes & Noble, too, they're making a lot of efforts. Like I'm very impressed with what they've done. If you were in Barnes & Noble at all over the summer... You saw, like, their pop culture week thing that yeah. they did for, like, eight weeks. They brought in rare toys from, like, Comic-Con that you couldn't get anywhere else. They had events. They had signings. They had special, you know, sales on things. Um, I saw kids dressed up as Ninja Turtles one day. Uh, my son's there, like, at least once a week playing with the trains, and maybe every other week we bring something home. I don't know about the board games themselves because they don't, like, I've never seen an organized play event I've That's not true. even on the yeah. magic level, like the easy one. Like they could easily make money on that, and I don't see them doing things like that. It might be around the corner because they're doing a lot more of these kinds of events. A lot of the stores have the square footage; they certainly can devote some to it. I think over the last couple of years, I remember first looking at board games, and you know, you come across them at Barnes and Noble. The board game selection has, at least from my kind of wanderings, has been at least cut in half, if not more. There used to be two huge sections which these are party games these are family games and this is strategy games and what's happened is it's really shrunk greatly they have a lot of these lego architect kind of stuff and they have the pop figures so other than the big sales where they they bring in games to kind of throw them on the clearance rack it's shrunk a lot i think the toy portion like anthony was saying the kids toys because you know sometimes you want to go to barnes and noble just walk around and look at all the books and maybe read something here and there the top floor of our Barnes & Noble was just cut away, and now it's all toys. We lost a lot of a lot of books, you know, from that section. Well, the books, yeah, I guess they were... The books were headed out the door anyway. The only way they could survive is by branching out. What was interesting is the toys and games is being taken over by toys now. Sure, yeah. Um, who knows? Maybe they'll stick with the games. They, they Like you said, they put a lot of games out there, clearance, they sell... They could build a loyal following if they just cultivated gamers. I think so. And I think any if you 
anybody who goes to a local game store knows the only way those stores survive is if they have a community and events and organized play yeah. and bring people in and have signings and release events. Barnes and Noble has not done that at all with the gaming community, and I don't know if it's something they've looked at and decided the money's not there, or if it's just they haven't gotten that far yet. But it'd be cool if they did, just to see what happens. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, the Books a Million down the street had a Pokemon League, and that was oh, there. Yeah, yeah. The height of their sales every yeah. week is, you know, parents would drop off forty some odd children at the store with you know, twenty bucks a pop, a, you know, piece, you know, and they'd all just run right to the register, buy everything <laughs> they could get. And this massive surge, right? They still sell games. It's interesting. I still see messages once in a while about, oh, books a million, you know, got this game, got that game. So really, they're I worth checking out. <laughs> yeah, they do have games. Round. <laughs> yeah, I felt like they kept seem to keep closing rather quickly. Um, publisher news: uh, Czech Games Edition CGE announced that they were severing their ties with Z-Man and Rio Grande. Uh, they're going to be releasing their own games in America from now on. Um, that's the company with uh, designer Vlada Švatil. Švatil? Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Sounds right. Galaxy Trucker through the ages. Um, I guess they realize they're creating enough good games. They don't need us. Is this another salvo in the Europe versus USA war? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who is it? Uh, Trevicek just did the same thing with Portal, right? Yeah. Like they just took back Nurashima Hex from Z-Man. They're going to start publishing that on their own too. Well, so it's also just easier to publish, uh, you know, as the infrastructure gets bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger, uh, distribution, handling distribution on your own becomes an easier and easier thing to do. So I don't know if it's so much a new salvo in the war, but it just means that you don't have to have these international partnerships as much, right? The same thing could be reversed, right? American companies that have partners in Europe to distribute there could start distributing on their own. And we talked about this previously, too, how um, designers are usually using Kickstarter basically for their complete distribution of their games. Yeah. They're skipping over the game stores completely and just sending to the customer. The established companies are yes. doing that more, definitely. So it's interesting to see the changes in the publishing industry. And uh, finally, one more thing I thought was interesting news. It's, a, it's another quarterly thing. Game Crafter um, always creates a board game challenge. Um, so uh, the news is you have until November 17th to put in your submission. Uh, it's a time challenge this time where you have to create a game that uses time as a resource. Um, what's interesting is they really tailor this. They say anybody can submit. Go ahead, throw your ideas. However, you also have to have it ready to publish. Sure. You have to have the artwork. You got to have everything all. But it's a lot of fun to noodle with. How would you create a game that uses time as a resource? Because they said no timers and no turn counters. Wow. So what's left? All I could think of was this, uh, I, I thought of this game called Tamsk, two-player abstract, where the pieces are actually little sand dials, but those are timers. Sure. I can't think of any other game. That's a complex uh, challenge. Well, you have to get abstract with it. Like, time can be a resource if time is just a resource, not actual physical time. Yeah. yeah. Time could be like a worker placement game where each hour is a, is a worker. So if you have 12 hours, you have 12 workers. If you spend those workers, you know... You spent your whole, your whole yeah. time. It'd be like a manufacturing yeah. game? Well, a manufacturing game, let's think of where different actions take different amounts of time. Like you can try and shortcut a process, but it'll eat up more time, or you can do a lot of individual steps. That, yeah. Well, like a game that like where you try to make the most efficient build process without quality dropping below a certain threshold or something. Mm. Um, I don't yeah, know. You have to choose just how much time you're going to put into something. A lot of those pre-programmed games where you're picking actions in advance 
and then laying them out, and they t- kind of take effect. Robo rally, yeah, like Robo rally, yeah. Well, that's that's initiative as much as anything, I think. Which actions give you the initiative? Um, RPGs do a lot of time resource, I thought, through initiative and through, you know, you ask some actions take longer than others. You want to cast a spell, well, you got to wait a minute. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to tinker with with time. But it's a fun idea. Get your get your ideas in by November seventeenth, the Game Crafter, and that's pretty much all I got from the tabletop. That's our news. Awesome. All right. So next up, we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to throw it to Chris. And he's going to tell us what's going to be on Kicking the Habit this week. Kicking the Habit. Hey, kickers. This is Chris from Kicking the Habit. On episode 14, we're going to take a look at two projects that recently wrapped up and four new campaigns that you might be interested in, including Poseidon's Kingdom, The Orc Father, Five Pack, and Board Game Accessories by E-Raptor. I'll let you know if you should kick them off, kick them to the curb, or kick back and wait. So look for us Wednesday, September 24th, 2014. Alright, so next up, let's dive into our acquisition disorders for this week. Acquisition Disorder Corner. Alright, Acquisition Disorders this week. Uh, okay, so this is a game I already talked about many, many times, but now it's available to buy. So it is at the top of the list. That's Battle of Five Armies. Uh, this is the Hobbit version of War of the Ring. And it's its its own game, so it's not be, you know, say, make it sound like it's a complete rescan or knockoff of the other game. It's, it's a new game. It's uh, got new mechanics, but it uses a lot of the same ideas, the different types of dice, the shadow versus free people's mechanic, the cards, and the way those all work, um, that kind of race against time aspect for one side versus the other, extremely asymmetrical play, but it's based on the Battle of Five Armies at the end of The Hobbit. It's a much shorter game, supposedly, and it actually flips things around so that the side that's kind of rushing to survive, I guess, is the shadow instead of the free people's. So that all, I mean, I already wanted this game. So it wasn't, that was never an issue. It comes with 100 miniatures. It's the same mechanic of a game I really, really like. It's Lord of the Rings. But it, the way that they've managed to refresh it and add new stuff and make it its own game makes it sound so cool. Uh, and the reviews are starting to come out now. Tom Vassell has a really great one on YouTube. You should check that out so you can see what it all looks like. But it's now available online. Um, as of right now, it's still available. It hasn't sold out at all. And uh, it just looks really cool. I'm excited to play it. So that's my acquisition disorder. Okay, mine's Munchkin Loot Letter. And I'll explain why. <laughs> um, I've always played Love Letter with the original uh, set. I don't go in for all these various skins, but I, I also love mashups. You know that. And Steve Jackson Games and AEG got together and decided, you know, let's, let's put the artwork from one onto the, the gameplay of the other. And I think it's a great idea. I'd love to see different companies, different designers just working together for whatever reason. And, uh, and I love the artwork. I know not all of you guys are crazy about the Munchkin gameplay, but the artwork's always funny, great to look at. And I think I didn't, I, for me, Love Letter would have a longer shelf life with the Munchkin skin on it. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, John Kovlik can do no wrong by me. I love his artwork. <laughs> I, yeah, like what did he, the new Cash and Guns that just came out. Not a game I ever thought I'd want to own, but with the new artwork, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll pick this up sometime. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a cool guy. We met him at PAX, too. He was really nice. Absolutely. Yeah, great. 
Uh, well, my uh, acquisition to sort of this week is is not surprising. Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons 5.0 or D and D Next, whichever you prefer, uh, Monster Manual is coming out at the end of this month. Ooh. And I've been very happy with what I've seen from them in D and D Next. I think it's a way to been a very effective way to rehabilitate a franchise that has been on the decline for a while. Uh, and I am excited to see what they're gonna give us to kill. <laughs> yeah, I gotta tell you, no, I gotta tell you, um, it was always one of the best things about D&D in my youth. I would read the monster manual just as light reading. Same it was here. fun to just yes. pour through that. And, Love it. Uh, I had one before I knew what D&D was, and I was like, look at all these monsters! <laughs> yeah. And I think, maybe I was eight, and my mom found it under my bed, maybe? <laughs> or other eight-year-olds might hide other things? And then that was like an hour-long conversation and it became a whole thing. Like, where did you get this? Why are you looking at this? <laughs> I was like, jeez. Um, so I grew up in a religious household at the time, anyways. Uh, so, but it was so much fun, like you said, because you're just like looking through and you're it's like, cool. where did this monster come from? What does he do? And you like write him into your own stories. I used to draw them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Do you still have the drawings? Oh, God. Maybe a couple, but... No. Post them, come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have one old sketchbook from around that time. I, I don't see if there's anything in there. Sketchbook, than... sketchbook, sketchbook. <laughs> it's like a great source of inspiration for you know your own imaginations yeah. and and of course for using in games. Though I I always prefer when people tweak things when they put them in the games because you shouldn't be able to go. All right, that's page sixty four of the monster manual. I know exactly what it does. No, make sure this beholder has, I don't know, a mutation and an extra eye or just something like that. Yeah. I mess with them. An extra eye on a beholder? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> if they can't handle it, they don't deserve to be the heroes. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's really where all the creativity comes into play with the monster manuals where it really does fill up the universe. Because otherwise it's, it's a knight. Yay. He's got a sword. Okay. A shield? Yeah, he's got a shield. Like, yeah. But the monsters really do make that universe and... No matter what RPG you play or just want to look at, the Monster Manual is always the best part of it. Yeah. It's where I first learned that there were actually creatures below that of orcs. I always thought orcs were like the cannon fodder sure. of the universe. <laughs> but kobolds, what are these things? Go, yeah. oh, but They're even lamer. I can't remember the, the, the guy's name right now, but there is a DM who ran a bunch of kobolds under the command of essentially as actually intelligent creatures who fought with strategy and in formation with shields and spears and they destroyed the player party just absolutely destroyed them because right they they marched in formation they put down their shields to protect from incoming missile fire they launched their spears out and like the, they, the spartans of the kobolds right yeah, exactly. nasty you gotta wow. remember that most of the the really the quote-unquote weaker creatures in D, a lot of them are sentient and intelligent sure and they're not going to fight like monsters right they're going to fight more and more like people more and more like humans wow very cool stuff so for me this week what i'm really interested in is sentinels of the multiverse but on the ios or android this has been talked about for quite some time but they actually have a release date now for october 16th now if you haven't played the multiverse here basically it's a co-op game in which each player gets a superhero character fighting the villain in an environment that also has effects in the game and that character and his special deck kind of plays out uniquely in comparison to other characters. So this is your kind of standard co-op superhero game. But honestly, for me at least, it's one of the best. So you'll be able to pick this up for the tablet, not for the phone, but for the tablet. And it's going to set you back about 10 bucks, which Whoa. is a little expensive yeah. on that side. Yeah. 
and there won't be any in-app purchases for this game. So you'll get 10 heroes, 4 environments, 4 villains, and they're talking about in the future having expansions because Sentinels has a multitude of expansions, no pun intended. <laughs> and um, they're also saying for the first 5,000 people who pick up the app, you will actually get a physical copy of the Super Scientific Tachyon promo card. Mm. It's something. So, you know, Sentinels is really good. The company's really good about this, greater than games, that they really want to kind of keep giving you promos. And the promos are actually really good. I mean, they're you know, usually when you get a game and you pick up the promos, like, ah, this is just another color. This is just another variation. The promos are really sought after. Um, Anthony and I, when we were at PAX East, and they were having a fundraiser for charity for the promos, I'm like... Hey, let's stick around. Maybe we'll pick up one or two for five or ten bucks. And it was like first bid, twenty five bucks, and then fifty bucks. And we're like, no, we need to go because <laughs> <laughs> they were going for like a hundred bucks or on each, which is great for charity. But this looks good. Usually, for me, when I see these in app games, I want to wait on them because almost you know, kind of, it's kind of hard to say. But usually, they go on sale and they kind of go on a massive sale at some point. So. If you're a fan of the physical copy, you're probably going to pick this up early to see if you have a shot at the card. Everyone else, you probably want to wait so we can, you know, pick it up for maybe seven bucks or five bucks or maybe a year from now it'll be ninety nine cents, which is always great about these apps. So kind of gauge your, you know, your feel for that, but it's something you should take a look at. Yeah, that's cool. I like this idea, and maybe some people don't, but I like the idea of if you're going to turn your game into an app incentivize people to buy into that yes like boss monster uh, did yeah. that and that's how they got me on the kickstarter for the ios same here is they got they got me to pay 20 something dollars for an app because i get like 15 cards out of it so that's true and it's pretty cool and it's um you know if other people did that they'd get less flack i think for building apps at least from me some people maybe not so if you're going to buy into you know if you want to buy into that if you already have all this cool stuff for a game like sentinels people then you're like all right well i guess it's not a big deal <laughs> i can spend the extra money um one card i don't know i don't actually own the game so i'm not going to spend ten dollars for this app but if i did like with boss monster i did i paid the extra to get my physical cards so it's a cool idea so that's all the acquisition disorders for this week next up let's talk about some of the games we've been playing lately at the table this week Alright, so at the table this week, let's take a look at some of the games we've been playing lately. Uh, Daniel, I know you've been playing something that I've been playing a lot lately as well. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, playing a lot of the Hearthstone, uh, especially with the new expansion, uh, trying to get used to the, the new cards and the new meta, and just as I was starting to get used to it, it's about to change fundamentally with two, a dual announcement of card changes. One is that Scavenging Buzzard is going to go up from a 2-1 to a 3-2, and from being two cost to being five cost yep. and then Leroy Jenkins is going to move up from being a four cost to a five cost which is I think going to have pretty significant consequences for the meta primarily targeting hunters which is about time because hunters have been consistently overpowered for most of the history of the game yeah. uh, so it'll be interesting how this all plays out I love hunters because if you ever played World of Warcraft the same thing happened to them like there they were overpowered for a very long time and then they got nerfed, and they were overpowered again, and then they got nerfed, and then they were overpowered again. <laughs> Paladins, too, but not so much in Hearthstone. Um, but, like, they had the uh, Unleash the Hounds was their initial super meta, 
Like people yes. could two or three shot you with that. And then they made that more expensive. And then it's like, okay, that's gone now. And then the new expansion came in with the starving buzzard. And they're like, now that's going to kick your butt. I'm like, no, not anymore. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so I like playing Hunter. And none of this stuff really matters that much to me because I'm not that level of a player that <laughs> I'm playing these hyper meta games. But it's funny to see them like waffle back and forth because the base mechanic of this class tends towards being overpowered. It just does. Yeah, I mean, with uh, Starving Buzzards getting more expensive, it does mean that one of the things that powers almost every single Hunter deck, which is that massive card draw you get from playing Starving Buzzards at the right time, that's going to be much harder to attain and just as hard to keep. Yeah. I mean, a 3-2 is not much more durable than a 2-1. Yeah. Um, it, and by the time you can get it out, for the cost that it is, it's easy to kill. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there have been so many times when I've seen people do the, you know, the Starving Buzzard, Unleash the Hound combo, and it's like, well, they just drew six cards and got six 1-1s, that you shouldn't have had six cards that put creatures on your field in the first place playing against a hunter, but that's your own damn fault, rhetorical person I made up. <laughs> but, right, you're... He knows who he is. Because <laughs> not only do you lose field control, almost certainly, but just that is way too effective for any one card play to be, and they gain a massive card advantage. It's just game-breaking. And I actually kind of mean it this time, right? It's really, <laughs> really imbalanced when that happens. You're allowed to say game-breaking when you're talking about an LCG, or a CCG in this case. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm safe. I'm safe. I mean, you know, and, and in fairness, there are ways around it, and a smart player will avoid that situation in the first place, right? You'll keep three or four, no more than four creatures on the field at any time. Probably less than that if you're fighting a hunter, um, because you know they're going to do that if you overcommit, but it is still an absurdly powerful combination. Yeah. Yeah, and I've I actually played a little bit of this during the week. Um, wasn't able to get out of the house at all this week, so like that'd be like my twenty minutes of cooldown time at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, still working my way through the 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 new dungeons, the next Ramus stuff. Oh, but yeah. so it's it's great to see that they're nerfing stuff before I even really unlock it. Great. <laughs> I mean, the biggest question for me right now, since I have a gold Leroy Jenkins, and they're changing that card, and every time they change a card, they allow you to cash it in for full dust value, right? What it would make to create that card. And it's not a massive shift to Leroy Jenkins, but that slight price increase is enough to reduce his efficacy to the point that he may no longer be the uncontested champion of the legendary cards. And if I disenchant him, I can get two legendaries from him. They just won't be gold. I could even get another Leroy if I wanted to. So maybe I'll have to do that. <laughs> I, yeah, I would do that. Yeah. <laughs> who? But who do I put in there? Who do you play? I play everybody. I have a, a deck for every class just because I like to be able to switch things up. I'm thinking maybe the Blood Mage. I like him. He's a good one. We'll find out. If you have any suggestions about what legendaries I should craft in the new meta and give your predictions for how it's going to play out, let us know. Yeah. And the one cool thing, too, is Blizzard basically said, uh, we're not going to make any more changes to the game this year. Yeah. So once these two changes are in, that's it until at least January. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be shuffling anything else on us for a little while. So you can set your meta and do whatever you want to do and destroy people, and it'll, you'll be fine for at least the next couple seasons. And I know this has been some talk about this on BBG. This is never going to be a physical game, right? I don't see how it could be. No. No, there's way too many things affecting way too many things, and it's, yeah... It's definitely designed as an electronic game. Yeah. But what, but what about if I said money? Did I did I mention money? 
Oh, money. Yeah, see, see? see? See what I did there? Well, see, in that case... I played the money card. It's golden. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's not forget Activision's involved here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Blizzard already has a number of World of Warcraft physical games, right? Mm-hmm. So... But they're all out of print. Really? Oh, yeah, that's right. Are there any in print right now? Is the CCG out of print? I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. They discontinued it last year. Oh. Well, then. Well, once the movie comes out, things will change. <laughs> the movie... Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that might do it. But that's two years from now, right? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Two years, ten years, something like that. No, they're done filming. Yeah. They're, they're in post, yeah. so. Oh, God. Post is, but half the movie's post. It's 80% of the movie's post. <laughs> yeah. They filmed for, like, two months, so. Was... They're like, dude, you stand here for five minutes. We'll do everything else. It's fine. So we're just going to take a bunch of pictures of you, and then we're just going to render you in a 3D model. Like, yeah. <laughs> by the time that movie comes out, nobody will be playing the game anymore. Mm. But we'll see. We'll see. The board game was supposedly kind of good. It's just... It was huge. It was one of those super massive fantasy flight boxes. But like you were talking before, if you could buy like the in-app purchases and get a physical card, even if yeah. it's just kind of a keepsake, you would pick up a Leroy Jenkins just to have that. Well, I mean, they did that with the CCG. Like, if you pulled certain cards, you could get that in-game. That's great. Like, oh, yeah. the other way around. And that's probably why that game survived so long. If they do that for Hearthstone and have things like, here's your code, put it in to get this golden legendary in-game... That'd be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'd be buying that too. <laughs> That'd be really dangerous. Oh man. Yeah. So it's another million dollar idea. Yeah. And and if you follow the uh, the dice masters way of doing things with so these one dollar expansions that oh, are sure. just a cu- couple of cards in them, I think that would be incredibly effective too. Because you know, I'm going to throw down ten dollars and get ten expansions and get that big old pile. And yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, let's hope they don't do that for our wallet's sake. <laughs> yeah. Um, you never heard this, <laughs> Blizzard. Keep listening. Keep listening. We love you listening to the podcast, but ignore that last segment. Just <laughs> pretend it didn't happen. Unless you want to bring us on board and uh, pay us money. And, and oh, yeah, then we'll totally. We'll work for cards. We'll work for Oh, my goodness. So, uh, are, are you guys done talking? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm back. Um, what were we talking about? Video games. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So let's move on to a board game. Uh, another game we played last week with actually our feature review, and that is Vikings. So Vikings is um, very, well, it's not super thematic, so I say Vikings, and that's the name of the game, but it's, you're kind of playing as Vikings, but it's definitely a Euro, and things are very abstract in that way in terms of the theme. Um, but the basic idea is there's like the, there's a, uh, a dial in the middle of the board where you're going to bid or you're going to pay for each of these vikings and island tiles based on where the numbers are on the dial and it's going to turn based on what's available so they're put out in a certain order um islands to ships and then fishermen to boatsmen and there's like i think five or six different types of vikings that are always put in the same order and you can pay whatever you want if you really need a certain island or a certain viking type but there's also one always that costs zero so you can get it for free but it's usually the least valuable one on the board because of how it's laid out. Um, so you go around in, in the circle uh, based on turn order, and you pick, you know, you buy one of these things, you place it on your board, and you're trying to build islands and populate those islands with Vikings to get victory points, gold, etc. Um, and there's also ships that can attack your Vikings, so you need to be able to block them with warriors throughout the game. So it's a tableau builder with a couple different elements. You can play it in a lot of different ways, but the goal basically is build your islands, put Vikings on the islands, score points. End of the game, make sure everybody's fed with your fishermen, 
That's it. Super, super quick. It took like an hour. The box did an hour. It took an hour. It was all of our first time playing. So it was, uh, that, that alone was like very enjoyable to me. It was a super quick game. Um, in terms of the actual tableau building itself, again, there's no theme here, really. It could be anything. It could be, you name a theme, it could be that. I mean, there's islands and there's Vikings, but it's not, it could be anything. It could be Vikings. It could be Vikings. Fairly. So let's call the game Vikingish. Vikingish, yeah. <laughs> yeah, calling it Vikings and not just like something related to Vikings, it makes it like you think it's going to have attacking of some kind and you're basically playing solitaire. You're not going to interact with each other at all. Um, and really the only element of attacking is the game attacking you, which you can easily block as long as you get the right islands. Uh, it's just a game of of you have too many choices and not enough meeples to you know not enough ch- turns to make those choices. Sure. So you have to make tough decisions. Um, the The basic rondelle is all about the decision: do you go for the cheaper, less desirable, or the more expensive, desirable? The combinations of tile and meeple is is great too. I love that forces more decisions. Because um, you can't always have what you want, so you have to make compromises. Yeah, it has that Tokaido element to it where you can jump ahead. You can pick a more expensive option that might be more necessary for your tableau, but it's costing you. Yeah. And then it has that Carcassonne component to it where you pick the tile up, but you got to have a place to put it. And depending on where you place it in your tableau, it has different effects. And then when you're taking that piece... That tile, you're also taking a meeple of a certain color, and that color affects your gameplay too. So there's a lot of different elements where maybe the island's not great, but the meeple's great, or maybe the meeple's great, but the island piece isn't great. And trying to figure out where to place those in your tableau, because you might want to build for victory points, or you might want to build for defense. And other people could see what you're building and therefore take pieces that you might need. So it has two kind of interesting mechanics, and I liked it. I, I I gotta be honest. Uh, don't wait. Don't be honest. I though. have to. Don't be honest. These are even Vikings. Before, They're gonna be upset with us. Even before the game ended, I said I gotta play this again. You know, I I realized there's a lot of different strategies <laughs> to try. What I did wasn't working. It's like I want to do this again, and that's a good thing for that's a game. The, that's the Viking in you. Yeah, <laughs> it brought the Viking out. <laughs> The cool thing, too, is literally everything comes out randomly. So the tiles, there are 72 tiles, and those are going to come out completely randomly. You, you'll split them up into six piles because there are six rounds. But you might get eight ships in the first round, so everybody gets attacked. Or you might not get any ships till the end of the game, so everybody has time to build up their warriors. You might get all one side of an island, which is really hard to build because you don't have any openings for that. Or you might get all the other side of the island. Uh, and there's different numbers of tiles, obviously. So it's not like you know it's going to be there at all times. The Vikings themselves are drawn out of a bag, and there's more than you need, so those also are going to be random throughout the game. So maybe you'll have one round where there's eight fishermen on the board, and maybe there's another round where there are none. So like, if you don't buy one when there's eight, you might not get one when there's zero. Um, that's cool. It makes for nice replayability. I mean, there's a lot of randomness, and in, in, in that regard, it's kind of replayable, but it's also just kind of dull, or at least it seemed like that for me. I... I to, to mirror Drew's comment, by the time we got through the first round, I was already kind of drowsy. I was just, all right, this is extremely dull. I don't see how, because there was no downtime. There was no AP problem here. You you already looked ahead. You could see what your next move was. 
you were look. It, it allows you to keep moving the game forward. I didn't see any downtime. It moved so fast. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it moved quickly, but the quickly moving things were boring. It's just being fast isn't interesting, right? If you can give me a whole bunch of decisions, but if they're all really boring decisions, okay. I valid, that's not going to you know interest me. Valid criticism. I mean, the game has a pace on theme, which I usually really kind of don't like. Here, I didn't mind it. I mean, the theme really wasn't much of a theme at all. But the gameplay, because it did play quickly, I enjoyed it. And yet, at the same time, as you were saying, Daniel. There's a lot of randomness because initially when I was started to play the game, I'm like, I need to get gold because you have to pay for things. And since I was third on the you know the player turn, Anthony and Daniel picked up all the gold, picked up the two gold characters. So I was like, well, I won't get, be getting gold for any time soon and had to pick up other characters. So it forced me into a completely different strategy based upon those things. And that happened a lot during the game. So you want to be good, but you also want to be lucky too. Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the mechanics of the game, they're well-polished, right? You can you can tell, like, this is a very well-polished example of what it is, but it is nothing more than that, which makes it so totally unexceptional to me as a game, right? There are lots of games with similar mechanics that are very well-polished. Po- well mm. There's just nothing additional about it. It's, it's reliable, it's... That's nice. It works. That's nice. But you put it next to almost any other game on my shelf, and I'm going to go, yeah, that one's, yeah, it functions, but that one's fun, right? But you don't own anything in this genre, so it's just you don't like this genre. That's not even a game thing. That's just... It's got a Rondell. I've not met a (laughs) Rondell I did not love. That's, you know, it adds so much to the game, I think, having the Rondell. Um, so Daniel, how would you rate this and be surprising? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go with a dodge here. It, it's a game that, if you put it up against almost anything else on the table, I'm not going to play it. Uh, I mean, if it's all you've got to do and you've run out of things to talk about, maybe <laughs> uh, throw it on the board table there. But otherwise, it's just not worth the time. It's not a lot of time, but it's just not worth it. Yeah, I'm going to buy it. I think it's a good game. So, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's unique. I don't have anything else like it. It's quick. It's easy to teach. took less than an hour. It's simple tableau builder. Nothing offensive about the theme. Um, just enough randomness to make it replayable. And I don't know. I had a lot of fun. So I also want to play it again, Drew. So we will play it again together. Right. <laughs> it's a play for me. I enjoyed the game. I like the fact that I couldn't have a solid strategy and I had to see how the game played out. And yet, at the same time, when I won the game, I was like, yeah, I did some things well, but some of those things were kind of just happened to happen. So, while I wouldn't purchase it, I would play it again. Um, well, I'm the classic corner uh, at the table, classic. Um, a game I've, I've played recently and really enjoyed is called Last Chance. It was put up by Milton Bradley um, back in the 90s. Um, part of a series of dice-based party games. And this is a, a great combination of tabletop and party. It's a simple Yahtzee meets craps uh, dynamic where you, um, you, you pull over a card that says, okay, you must meet this combination of five dice to win X amount of dollars. So not only do you have the dice where you have to try and meet this combination, but then everybody else bets on whether you're going to make that combination or not. So everybody's involved every round. It's not just the guy who's holding the dice. Um, So, and it'll usually give you like three rolls to make a a 
full house, things like that. So there's this constant betting. And if you lose, then the person next to you gets a chance to finish out and you, you bet again. You're bidding on those cards, by the way. So if there's an easy combination, lots of money, the bets are going to be high. Everybody gets a, a generous amount of chips to start, and these are good, heavy, solid plastic chips, not light flyaway. They're really usable in other games, too. That's what I like about it. Last chance. It's, it's the sort of thing Hasbro has not kept in print, but um, it's worth looking for at thrift shops. It's worth trading for online, um, not only because of the high quality of uh, components, but it's a party game. The, the times I brought it out with fun groups, everybody loves the betting aspect and uh, we're cheering whether you make or don't make the roll. Um, game that sustains a lot of interest. It's great at my table, and I'll bring it out again. Last chance. Awesome. Sounds yeah. like fun. Yeah. Classics. Gotta love them. <laughs> <laughs> now that we have time for them, but, you know. Just expanding the amount of games That's I want to play, Drew. Gotta yeah. go back. Gotta go back to the well and bring it back. Fortunate. <laughs> Alright, so next up we're going to talk about our feature review for this week, Among the Stars. And now for the feature review. So the feature review for this week is Among the Stars. This game is originally printed in Greece, Artipia Games, and it's been on Kickstarter and Indiegogo and a dozen other things many times. So you might have had this game for a little while, maybe you backed it this year and you've had it, or it's coming your way. Um, this particular copy is the one released by Stronghold Games here in the U.S. just over the summer. So it's the official U.S. distributed release. Um, so it's been out for a couple of years, but this is like the first copy to officially be available in the U.S. And it's basic, I mean, it's a tableau building game, but it has a lot to do with the space in front of you. And there's a lot of different mechanics to it that are a little interesting compared to some other tableau builders, especially if you've heard comparisons between it and Seven Wonders, because it's not really the same except for one mechanic. A very important mechanic, card drafting, but it's not the same type of game. Um, so the basic idea of the game is you're going to have your main power reactor and every round you're going to have a hand of cards, you're going to pass it around, you're going to be drafting them as you would in Seven Wonders. Um, the cards in the deck that you're drafting from, there's different cards based on the number of players. It doesn't play as many players as Seven Wonders, it's two to four, so it's not as expansive in terms of the different types of cards. And there aren't, you don't have that, that three age thing, so it's all the same cards in the deck from the start of the game. But same basic idea in that way. Um, there's also a few objectives lined up, kind of like Suburbia, where you're trying to build towards a certain goal, like the most blue buildings or the most green or the most purple, uh, the most buildings overall. Those are kind of the objectives you could have. And then there are other power reactors that you can buy that you'll need later because no one building can be more than two spaces away from a power reactor. So you, you basically need to power your whole station. You can't just build off it ad infinitum. Um, but as you go around, you're going to get your hand of cards, you're going to pick one, you're going to turn them all over at the same time, you're going to build it, you're going to pay the cost, and you're going to resolve the effect of the card immediately. Uh, unlike Seven Wonders, where you kind of add up all your points at the end of the game, in this game you're doing it as you play. And there are some cards that have effects at the end of the game, they'll be in yellow, but a lot of them will resolve immediately. Um, so because of this, there's a little bit more AP because you're constantly looking and seeing how close everything is and how many points you're going to get if you build this versus this. Um, one card might be, you know, two points for every 
missile turret you get at the end of the game, so you're like, okay, now I need to build more missile turrets, that kind of thing. It also makes it so you want to pay attention to what other people are doing, because then you're going to want to keep those cards so they don't get the missile turret. A lot of things going on there. There are ways to burn cards, because you need more money, you need power reactors, you'll burn cards to get those. There are also little energy cubes that will be on your power reactors that you'll use to power certain cards. Certain cards require those energy cubes to be built. Um, so the idea of the game is, it sounds very familiar, but there are a few things that are very different and unique about it, and that makes the gameplay really quickly, um, because you don't have a ton of options at any one point, other than what's in your hand. And the strategy you build is going to be generally around the objectives you're looking at and what you've already built, so what's available when you get your hand. So if you have five or six blue cards out already, they all have synergy with each other, you're going to build more blue cards. It makes it a little easier, keeps the game quick. Um, and the only other thing to mention here is the obvious size of the game when playing. You are building a tableau of cards. You're going to put out 24 cards at the most, because you'll turn some in for money or power reactors. So you'll have upwards of 24 cards, 25 cards actually, including the main power reactor, on the table in front of you, times however many players there are, plus the board, plus the cards, plus everything else. It takes up a tremendous amount of space. So if you do not have a very large table, I do recommend that you wait until you're at a game store or you can get a bigger table. We jammed it in on a pretty standard kitchen table, and it was very, very tight, and there was a lot of overlapping. But there was a lot of sliding and... It was, it was a little messy in the end, the last round, but it's not a knock on the game at all. You look at the back of the box and you know exactly what you're getting, but in this case, it was like, oh, there's even more space than I thought it was going to take. But overall, a very unique, fun game. Definitely lives up to a lot of the hype in certain ways, and uh, excited to talk about it, see what you guys think. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was. I had a very good time playing this through this game, and I, I, Seven Wonders was actually one of the very first games I played with you guys. Uh, so that brought back, brought back fond memories and the, the card drafting mechanic. Um, I think you're right to say that the two aren't as close as some people have been saying they are. They're not really that related. Um, but I thought this was a very fun game. I liked that a lot of the the individual cards had specific abilities that would push you in towards uh, different kinds of play styles and would allow you to build different sorts of point engines, and in some cases things like money engines, right? And I think that made the game much more variable than a lot of games of the similar kind. So I found it very satisfying in that regard. I remember hearing about this game way back in the day because this was a European release and it was on Kickstarter all over the place. And every once in a while, they Kickstarter would kind of pop up and you were like, wow, I should really get this. And it has so many expansions and so many additional things. And I haven't seen this in the U.S. So Stronghold bringing this over is really great for us here because... There is so much to like about this game. Now, it does have a little kind of card drafting. I mean, it doesn't feel like a card drafting game. It feels more like a tableau building game. I mean, that's really the importance. It's kind of weighed out there. Whereas when you do play Seven Wonders, you're building a tableau. But the tableau doesn't really matter. It's more set collection than anything. You're not really building something that's necessarily kind of snowballing off everything other. So... It's interesting in that sense where you're picking the right cards. As Daniel was saying, if you pick some red cards, then obviously they benefit off the red and blue benefits off the blue. So there is some similarity there. But a fun and interesting game as far as unexpected changes and challenges with it. Yeah, it's it's a cool... I think the Seven Wonders thing, and you know, probably should stop talking about Seven Wonders at this point, but that's what everybody compares it to, at least when they first hear about it. 
the drafting matters a lot, obviously. The point of a card drafting game is you can see what other people are building towards and then swipe a card from them. But there's six cards in the hand each time you do that. So, yeah, okay, I can stop you from getting this one blue card, but hey, look, there's two more in the hand. It doesn't matter. Or, hey, your race has a special ability where you can swap hands with somebody else, and so you just get the card you need anyways. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to mitigate that effect uh, versus, like, Seven Wonders, where there's not that many tech cards, and if you know that somebody needs that one kind of tech, you can just slide it under for your wonder. Um, in this particular case, it's definitely about your own tableau and building out how everything interacts with its on your in your space. So it's very solitaire, at least in the base rules. And I should mention there is an aggressive mode. There's some cards you can throw in there to mess with people. We did not play that way, because it's not the base game, but... So you notice how we keep saying, well, we shouldn't be comparing it to Seven Wonders, and then we go ahead and compare it to Seven Wonders. It's unavoidable. I think that there is such a link between the two that we should have done a Among the Stars versus Seven Wonders episode, comparing the two. A, a lot of uh, uh, similarities. First of all, because Seven Wonders is far more intuitive. It's easier to pick up, and it goes faster. Believe it or not, it was easier for me to learn than this game, which has so much text and so many little details on the cards that force you to um, spend... It's more AP in this game, and I don't think you're going to get rid of that simply by playing it more often. Um, and so it's not just the, the intuitive part, but the fact that you have to admit where you place a card... Where you play it matters on what's to both sides. Seven Wonders is all about that, too, because what the players on both sides of you influence your resources, because you can buy the resources from them. They already have that function already. The warfare, which not everybody likes about Seven Wonders, but the warfare involves players on either side of you. So that has that also. There's more of an interactive element in Seven Wonders than this, which is simply four-player, in our case, four-player solitaire, that was boring for me. Um, and there wasn't enough in the variety of cards that I received. I, I, here's, here's why. Here's the big difference between the two. Seven Wonders had three rounds. The cards were different each round. So you were able to lay a foundation and build on it later on. In Among the Stars, it was all random. So you had cards at the beginning of the game that you could really only use at the end of the game. But they were gone. Bye-bye. And you were stuck with playing whatever you got in the beginning. Um, it was very frustrating from my point of view because I put myself in a hole and I couldn't dig out of. You know, it's interesting. I had an almost opposite reaction. I found this more intuitive than Seven Wonders, partially because so much of the game is on the cards that all I have to do is read the card, and I'm like, oh, that's what it does. Okay, I, I know what this does now because it says right here what it does. Um, it definitely is more complex. In some regards, it's more complex in that you have to pay attention to how you build your tableau, like Chris was saying earlier. But it does, does lose the complexity of the three phases, and I did kind of miss that, but I'm not sure I missed it enough to justify the additional level of mechanical complexity and complexity for setup and cleanup. Yeah. So it, it didn't make a huge difference for me, and I really enjoyed having the tableau be more significant, right, the way you build it. Yeah, I like how the physical space matters. That's cool. Seven Wonders, you end up with just a giant pile of cards. Yeah. And it's a mess, and there's no way to not make it a mess. And the way you interact with other players around you is more annoying than anything else. I'm not knocking on Seven Wonders. I just think they're kind of different games. I think they scratch a different itch. I would own both of them. 
kind of a thing. I think they have different situations for different types of people. Oh, for yeah. going there then. Yeah. Um, if I walked into my local game store and I saw two tables, one on my left playing Seven Wonders and one on my right playing Among the Stars, I would dodge Among the Stars and play Seven Wonders. I, I would have the exact opposite reaction. I, I mean, I enjoyed Seven Wonders, but I've played Seven Wonders and I'm done. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Seven Wonders. Every time you play it, it's Seven Wonders. That's nice. Though there is some more complexity that can be introduced later on and, you know, how other people play can influence you. I actually found that so among the stars, things like the various faction powers were dynamic and interesting, though I got, I think, my, by my assessment, the single most boring faction power because I had no active powers. I couldn't affect the way the game was actually playing. It only mattered at the end of game. And I think that's more passive than I wanted them to be. Mm. So your faction choice matters a lot to how Among the Stars plays. So what I would do is take both tables, pull them together, and try to convince players to let me play both at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Because they do scratch somewhat of a different itch, but they both have some similarities to them too. So Among the Stars, it's like playing Seven Wonders with the leaders, right? So those leaders, the race-specific kind of powers and ability... It's nice to have an opportunity to kind of build a tableau. I really love tableau building. It's not strong at all with the card drafting. The card drafting is almost a second secondary thought. Like, oh, we're going to pick from these cards. But as Drew said, like since they're so random, since they're all kind of thrown into one bunch, it's not like Seven Wonders where you build this and therefore it chains off this, where it chains off that. So, yeah, I'm going to pick a red, I'm going to pick a blue, I'm going to pick a yellow, and hopefully I'll get another one of those you know, later. And based upon the final bonuses, those things kind of matter. See, I, I actually did kind of aggressively intervene with the card drafting. So I, You would! I know. <laughs> well, I, I, I pulled a council chamber early on, and you get an additional point for everyone else who doesn't get one. Okay. And throughout the course of the game, I trashed two of them, or three of them, into the discard pile. Uh, but I got one. I knew it! I got one. You got one, yeah. but there were like five in the deck. <laughs> and I was going, nope, no one else is getting that. And the one reason that made that strategy a little mm. bit less effective for us is Chris played the race that was able to pull from the discard pile. If you took that race out of the calculation, you can really trash things. Well, that was the biggest single time waster in the game. Is Chris's power? Oh, I gotta look through the pile. I gotta look through the pile. Every round, you got to do that. Well, once a round, and when you did look through that, you discarded everything from the pile. Seven Wonders has that same mechanic too, yeah. where you can look through the discard pile and play a card. Yeah. yeah. So it's not I revolutionary. A, I, think I had a similar power yeah. where I could take someone else's hand and exchange any card from it with one from mine. Yeah. So that also slowed things down, and I use that pretty liberally. So I mean, I don't think either of you guys were terribly slow with this. I was just thinking, no. saying that the reason that you can't trash things as aggressively in a lot of ways as you can in other games is it kind of feels... I mean, if there is that one race on board, that negates that effect, right? And even then, it's not a total negation, right? I just had to make sure there was something else down there I thought Chris wanted more. You know, it's easier... In Seven Wonders, it's easier to see the tableaus that others are built... Well, layout more so than Tableau. You can see what they're building, so you can see what the trash. Very easy um, down the line, where this was not so... Looking at everyone else's Tableau, which is really far away because the footprint is big. And and we should also talk about that too, Drew, because not only is the Tableau huge for as far as the footprint's concerned, but the artwork, which is nice and is highly detailed, is so vibrant and distracting that to look over at someone else's tableau is just blinding. Yeah, there's a lot of important information on those cards, but it's in such small print because And that's interesting too, because Daniel was saying like it's nice because you don't have to know the iconography, 
but it's hard because now I can't just look over and go, oh yeah, that does that and does that yeah. because I see the symbols yeah. on there. Yeah. I'm torn because I really like the individual art on the cards. I think it's way better than most games in its league, but it's also less iconic, right? You can't just look over and then go, okay, that's a red three or whatever, right? Yeah. It's that is. There's some guys sitting on a park bench and some birds <laughs> flying yeah, you by. You put it all together and it's very yeah. busy. Right, yeah. It's, no, it's, but each, each individual card, like, I was going to buy this game, like, I'd fly over to Europe because I love tableau building, I love card drafting, and I did not pick this game up initially and I was hesitant on it because of the artwork. Mm-hmm. Now, just because it's it's bland in a way of, like, this this special area does what? Okay, it's just a room with a couple of doors. There's nothing dynamic about it. I mean, there's some parts where a communications array looks like a communications array or a, 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 a laser gun looks like a laser gun. But other than that, it's just a random room that's just kind of blurry with the amount of color they throw into it. So it's nothing exciting or interesting for me and it kind of drops it down a little bit. I actually I rather enjoyed the art. It would have... It is art for a larger card, though. Like, it's art for... It it needs a bigger space for the amount of detail they put in there. And it's shrunken down so small, it makes it either hard to see the detail, and it also makes it pretty difficult to identify other people's cards, as we've been saying, that you can't see very well. You can see the color, and if you get really good and familiar with all the cards, you can be like, all right, that's a turret, that's a turret, that's a turret. Okay, they cannot get any more turrets because they sort of scale with one another and have this cascade effect. But it would take a lot of playthroughs to get used to that. I think that was the only thing, yeah. too. They, they should have shrunk the pictures somewhat to allow more color around the edges. Because where you have that final bonuses that pop up, it was like gold, green, yellow, and red. And I was like, he's got, is that three? Is that four? You know. So then that, you kind of count that. It's not bad. It's just, it would have done so much better if it had, I don't know, like either larger cards or different art. Yeah. It doesn't bother me too much. Um, I feel like... A few times, you know, like it's drafting, so you see what most of these cards are at some point, that and then you good. see it on someone else's tableau. You kind of almost remember what it is. The first couple times playing it, you're not going to know what every card is, anyways, in any game. So I don't think it's fair to say, "Oh, it's not all pure iconography." That's okay, fine, but there's a lot more variability in what the cards can do because of that, because it's mm-hmm. text, like what you were saying, Daniel. Yeah. So I think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing. I like the artwork. It reminds me of like old 70s and 80s sci-fi book covers. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I don't. I think yeah. Once you have like 100 cards out on the table between four people, it gets a little busy. But it didn't bother me that much, and I, I have fun with seeing what all the little different things are doing as you kind of build this world in front of you. Yeah, and I mean on the, the counterside to the whole they're not very iconic is for them to be iconic, there has to be a relatively limited number of functions in the cards, right? If you're going to represent them through distinct icons, and the fact that the cards are so varied is what prevents them from being iconic, and that's something I really, really like about this game as compared to other similar games, because I like that variety. I like that they have these really unique functions. All right, so, I mean, overall, rating-wise, um, I'll start things off. I did pick up this game before I'd played it, but I'm very glad I did. I would give it a strong buy. I think it's... As a tableau building game, it's accessible, easy to teach, fun, quick. Uh, it only plays four, and you do need a lot of space if you're playing four. So that's an issue uh, if you don't have that. It can play two also, but then you're going to be playing with kind of the robot player type thing because you're drafting. So that's keep that in mind. Um, 
But if you have a group of four, you like tableau builders, you want a game that takes about an hour, and you want sci-fi, not civilization building or you know the other types of tableau building games out that we're talking about, this is a really good game. I like it a lot. And there's already two expansions that'll be out in like the next month. So it's already expanding. The game's been out for two years, so it's like perfect. Um, you're not going to be waiting forever for new stuff. Very good game. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly on the same page there with you. I had a lot of fun playing it. I have a few little quibbles, but they're small. Um, and overall, I'm, I'm leaning towards buy. Uh, it's, it's a borderline buy, but it's more buy than play because I think it's really a fantastic game. It's also, I mean, how much does it cost, run for? It's 50 so it's a little high for what you're getting in the box, but I think the replayability and the number of cards and the, com- the I- components don't really support it necessarily, but the game does. Cards and a scoreboard. That's how you're getting, basically, the scoreboard. They're good cards. They're well illustrated. Yeah. They're detailed. I mean, my guess was going to be about 45, so 50, that's right on the money, or essentially. Uh, so that's well within what I think would be a good deal for this, even at full value. If it's on sale, it would be an excellent deal. Uh, and especially with the expansions coming out, which promise to make the game, which is already complex and engaging, and that's why I like it more than other games of its kind, even more so. So it might be my favorite tableau builder before long. I'm just going to echo everything Daniel said, because I feel the same way. This game is a play with a trigger finger for a buy. If the expansions do add more to the game, I'm all over this. I'm going to buy everything that ever came out with this. But just for the, the base game... It's kind of, yeah, maybe, uh, uh, uh. the expansions can push me over on this. So right now it's a play. Well, there are over 10,000 rated games, ranked games on BoardGameGeek. Right now, Among the Stars is sitting in the low 400s. So it's not unfair to compare it with Seven Wonders, to put them in the same conversation. Um, That said, it suffers by comparison. I dodge it. All right. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, it's it's definitely if you have the the option between the two. Um, I mean, I feel they both have a place on the same shelf, but obviously you can only pick one to play at one time. That's it. So. That's it. All right. Pick among the stars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's our full review for Among the Stars. And uh, as those expansions come out, I'm sure we'll get this thing back to the table and try those out and see what they add to the game, if anything. Um, and there's at least two coming very soon. They're on pre-order with Stronghold as we record this. So, that's everything for that. The next thing we wanted to do, we wanted to dive into our new weekly segment, the Fab Four Questions of the Week. And I'll let Drew take that away. It's the Fab Four. You know, this is International Tolkien Week. And we aren't giving the proper props to the man. He's been dead a long time. Let's bring him back. Um, it's appropriate that we... Uh, yeah, everyone's forgotten all about Let's him. Let's bring him back. <laughs> you know, I don't know that scientific technology, okay. technology has approved that. If you saw yet. him on the street, would you recognize him? You would, would you know who he was? You would <laughs> screaming. If I saw the decayed corpse of Tolkien on the street, I would not recognize him, but I would recognize the eldritch abomination that he has become. That's it. That's it. So we all know about the, the, the whole industry that's grown up around his works. We just have to remember him, the man at the core. So um, we're just going to honor him by picking our favorite Tolkien-themed game or property of uh, for this. I'm going to go last. So Okay, I'll go first. Uh, this is super easy for me. Uh, War of the Ring. <laughs> War of the Ring is amazing. Uh, I have the game. It's about a third of the way painted at this point. That's going to take forever. It's like 200-some-odd minis. I have the expansion. I have the tin with the extra 
sleeves. I have the Treebeard expansion that you can only get on BoardGameGeek. I got all this stuff, and I got Battle of the Five Armies on the way, uh, which I haven't played yet. Maybe that'll change things. But War of the Ring, fantastic, asymmetrical, really feels like you're living the book. I'm going to go for Lord of the Rings, the LCG. Hmm. When I think Tolkien, I think characters and character development and amazing stories. So to have the opportunity to play as these beautifully, wonderfully rendered characters and the artwork is outstanding. But in addition to that, to the LCG format, to be able to pick up a new adventure each and every time and say, yeah, I don't want to go down there. I want to go over here. I want to try I want to see what goes, goes on here. And it almost plays out like a story. Like Tolkien would really want. So for me, it's got to be Lord of the Rings, the LCG. All right. Chris, I think I've got a similar inspiration, but a very different conclusion, which is I like the idea of the the narrative arc and the magnitude of the adventures one can have in a Tolkien-style world. And I think the single best game system for capturing that is Dungeons & Dragons, right? I mean, it was a heavily Tolkien-inspired system, and they wanted to call Halflings Hobbits, and then they ran into some legal problems. Um, unsurprisingly, uh, and it just has the ability to produce these magnificent epics, if you run them right anyway, uh, these <laughs> magnificent epics that you get to participate in. So, you know, screw you, Mr. Bilbo, I'm going on an adventure, <laughs> you can stay home today. I, I like that. I like being able to take ownership of that. That's it. it, it wouldn't have, Dungeons and Dragons could not have been possible without the, the popularity of Tolkien among the geeks in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what it grew out of, so it owes it. Um, so does LCG have the character of Tom Bombadil in it? I believe so. Really? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. How, how large of a... He's a character card, so... Just a card. The game, yeah. Okay. And I know Dungeons and Dragons, they, they would come out with a lot of campaigns based on Tolkien. I never recalled Tom Bombadil one, though. Um, the reason why I bring this up is because... High-level Druid. Hmm? High-level Druid. No. <laughs> like, high-level half-fey well, Druid. Possibly high-level Druid. I mean, this guy was... Okay, level 25. Yeah, epic epic on, level on, Druid. Fine. The level of a god. Okay. Tom Bombadil is a character that gets overlooked um, in, in the movies and in every retelling, in every game. And even Tolkien gave him short shrift, shrift in the first book of The Lord of the Rings. Just a quick passing mention he didn't Tolkien hate him Tom Bombadil like in after writing the book he said that including Tom Bombadil was a mistake I thought yeah well that's because yeah. in the in the proto stories that he wrote he had a lot Tom Bombadil was part of the world that it came out of but I happen to like that character for the possibilities I mean imagine the immense power that guy had but not just that but what was going on in the old forest the old forest had the tree that swallowed up Frodo and it had you know shifting landscapes and I want to see a game based on the old forest on Tom Bombadil in the old forest um, an adventure game that's the one I'm waiting for as you know you know I don't like playing Tolkien games because I believe they're canon and shouldn't be tinkered with so give me something that isn't written about give me something that's that's mysterious that we need more about I've always enjoyed Tom Bombadil uh, I like that character. The fact that the ring had no power and no interest. He had no interest in it. It was like, eh, bigger than that. That's an incredible character. I want to know more about him. Give me a game about him, and I will buy and play that game. Whoa. 
Now we have to make it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, awesome. So if you guys have any favorite Tolkien games we didn't mention, or if you agree with any of us and want to, you know, tell us why, definitely uh, write in on Board Game Geek or on the website and let us know, because it is International Tolkien Week. Yeah. All right. All right, so real quick before we go, we got a question on uh, Twitter that I okay. wanted to throw your guys' way. So... Uh, one of our listeners, Greg, was asking about a good lightweight game for a non-gamer wife. Um, now, this is a question I can answer, obviously. I have a bunch of games I bought for us to play, but <laughs> I wanted to see what you guys thought first. And just, like, if what kind of games, um, as a recommendation for him, would be good to introduce to uh, somebody who does not game very much, but wants to spend time with him anyways. Huh. Well, the easy answer, I guess, would be Love Letter. Yep. It's the kind of classic gateway game. It's short. It's simple. You're holding one card in your hand. It it has a theme which kind of plays with everybody, and it has a flavor that plays with everyone. As Drew was saying earlier in the cast, you can pick a theme for this that kind of matches the people you're playing with. Quick question. So from the question, did you get the sense that it was a two-player game he's looking for? Yes. Okay, so it's something that has to play well. Does Love Letter really play well? Yeah. It's just two? It plays all right. I mean, yeah. so I don't have a non-gamer wife, but I have a non-gamer girlfriend. And the first game <laughs> we ever played together was Love Letter, and we played, you know, I just tried to introduce it to her, played one round together, which led to us playing, I think, ten rounds in one night, yeah. because she absolutely loves that game. All right. I actually asked well. this exact question of Chris and a few people at the store, like, maybe a year, year and a half ago. Love Letter was the one that they said, and I bought it, and my wife loves Love Letter. So... Yeah. That, Settlers of Catan, which doesn't even play that well with two, but it's still fun. Um, Ticket to Ride, and <laughs> this is not really good for non-gamers, but she does like it, Summoner Wars. Uh, those are the oh, four that we play. Wow, that's, that's an escalation there. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, She's not a theme person. She doesn't really pay attention to the theme, so the mechanics of that are very non-gamer friendly. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, the, the ones that I've had the most success with, success with were, was Love Letter, um, Betrayal of the House on the Hill, but that really requires more than two players. It's very charismatic and friendly, but you have to have more than two players. Yeah. That's a that's a, a game night with your friends. Yeah. Um, and then um, she really liked Gravwell, which is an esoteric kind of weird game that doesn't get the amount of attention it deserves because it's really fantastic. I think Carcassonne is always a good choice for any okay. entry level game that plays really well too, and it actually has a two player version of Carcassonne. So if you want the direct just two players, you can play that. And I think for any non-gamer to start off with these just one or two tiles and, and at the end have this beautiful landscape in front of you. And you can really pick the expansions to match the game that you're playing with. Yeah. Um, basic, three, three basic types of games um, to introduce are abstracts, but cute abstracts like, um, hey, that's my fish, I would recommend. Um, the second one would be dice game. I've always enjoyed Las Vegas. I think it's a great entry dice game that can play well with two people. And then a card game, Lost Cities. Um, even though that may be a little more strategic for beginners, it's still it's easy to learn and a lot of fun to play. Super easy. What about Takato? I think Takato would be a good entry here. Yeah, yeah that'd a, be nice. It's very charismatic, very friendly, both in appearance and in gameplay. It's, and it doesn't feel like you're sitting down to... A game, right? You're not gonna have and, to. But Takanoko has the cute little pandas. Who can resist? Takanoko could be another good call, but I think that one would not play all that well. With oh, you. come on! No, no, I, I disagree with you on that. You know what we should do? We, we should, should do a versus. 
Ah, ah so I like that. Kaido. Okay. This is the very first time we have ever said this idea. It has not at all been planned. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do it. All right, Next so week. that's everything for this week. Next week, you should listen for our reviews of Takaido and Takanoko. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, there can be only one. <laughs> it's going to be our new recurring feature. We'll pit off two games that are basically the same uh, from the same designer and see what people think. Um, so Takanoko, Takanoko and Takaido next week, which will be awesome because I think Bowser's got another one coming out next month in the same kind of theme and same kind of artwork with Samurai Spirit. So I have a Bowser month. Nice. <laughs> uh, but that's everything for this week. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a nice blue quarters in the tableau. Thank you.